You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Robert Gresses, it's good to see you. Nice to see you too, Dan. Kaufman. Um, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience, bloggingheads.tv, meaningoflife.tv. Um, I'm here once again with Robert uh, Gresses. Uh, due to popular demand, um, and um, Robert is a professor of philosophy at Cal State Northridge, which I gather from the from one of the commenters who knows California really well, since Robert admitted his geography is poor, yeah. is in the San Fernando Valley. Oh, so, that I knew. I knew it was the San Fernando Valley. So you're like in Fast Times at Richmond Highland, man. I mean, you're like you're in Ground Zero. Yeah. America, right? <laughs> there, there, there used to be Valley Girls here. I know. Right? You're I think so they lucky. all moved out. No, yeah, no, they, no. All, they all moved to Long Island, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Or, or um, Long Beach, I don't know. So um, last, last time we talked, we, we were talking about your essay. Um, is philosophy in the okay? Usher, sorry, is philosophy okay? Where you, were, where you were really questioning whether it's morally permissible to uh, be a, prof- a philosophy professor. Yeah. And um, one of the things that seemed to really underlie our disagreement is about just to what extent we should apply moral scruples or moral considerations to the things in our lives. Um, and I've elsewhere called this the morality everywhere problem and it's something that I very much um, not only think is a mistake philosophically, but which I, I very much socially dislike. Um, I think it's actually a good reason why the social environment has become so toxic and unbear- unbearable is precisely because people are moralizing things way too much and too often. And so we, I thought we, we thought we would just do an entire dialogue just on this because this is the crux of the disagreement, it seems to me, between us. You like the mor- morality everywhere idea, or at least you think that there's things to be said for it, and I, I really dislike it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And um, Robert pretty much came up with the, the outline for the discussion, and so I'm going to let him kind of lead it in the various directions that we, we, we talked about off camera. So why don't you go ahead and start, Robert? Uh, or if you want to add anything in the summary of where how we got here, please do. Oh, sure. Um, well, one of the premises that underlies my worry about the permissibility of being a philosophy professor is if it's the case that I'm not doing good with my job, or if in particular I'm doing uh, net harm with my job, then maybe... And if I can um, take another job that does do positive good, then maybe I'm morally required to right. do so. And not just, uh, not just like prudentially required or not just, it might be a super erogatory thing where a super erogatory means sort of like above and beyond the call of duty, but just like, no, such that if I don't do it, I've done something wrong. Right. And, um, I don't know if you would even think it's super. Well, first of all, you deny that. Well, we don't even need to rehash that essay. But, uh, what part of what motivates this view, and I, I don't take the singer air, the singer in position to the, quite the extreme. There's just, actually, there's just one thing about that I do want to ask you. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> and I didn't ask you last time. Um, <clears throat> it's not a challenge. It's more whether you can see why 
it could, it looks to someone like me so odd, right? So like, if I'm a, if I'm a professional thief, mm-hmm. I'm this, the question you're asking seems to me has a lot of salience, right? Okay. Okay. Listen, I'm doing harm to people and I could be doing something productive, right? I could be doing something that doesn't harm people. Right. Mm-hmm. Or if I worked for a mafia boss, right. Mm-hmm. Or if I was an online scam, right. In other words, we all know very clear examples of people engaged in clearly unethical professions or unethical endeavors. Mm-hmm. And we would certainly run this sort of argument. <coughs> and I think appropriately. I just find it very odd to have that conversation about being a teacher. And, um, and that oddness to me is stronger than the philosophical arguments. Mm-hmm. I just keep coming back to the oddity, right? It's like, okay, I could see myself having this conversation with a guy who's trying to decide whether to continue to sell crack on the corner, right? Mm-hmm. I'm having a hard time having a, a parallel analogous conversation with the fucking teacher. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, do you not well, see do you- that? Do you not see how that just to a lot of us just looks really weird, right? Like a weird kind of scruple, right? Yeah, I do. But I think, I think what underlies that sense of weirdness predominantly is a belief in the efficacy of teaching. That you're doing a really good job here, that you're, you're changing people's lives, you're informing them, you're making them better people. If you gave that up and you don't believe that, then it doesn't look as odd. Just think about it like this. Um, there are some people I've met who changed jobs. They worked for, let's say, video game industry. And then they think to themselves, what am I doing? I'm just like wasting my life. I'm not doing anything good here, right? Sure, people might be getting entertained, but they're also wasting lots of time. And like, all we do is we make the next version of, you know, the wrestling game. We do a few tweaks. We put that out, right? And I'm not doing anything of significance. I met somebody who had this sort of view. I don't remember if his industry was video games. But he ended up, he wanted to become a realtor. Now you might say, gosh, what does a realtor do that's so great? But he really believed in what he did. He thought, you know, I'm putting people together with houses. It's, you know, changing their lives. I try to find the best deal for them. I really believe in the product. And he found this sense of meaning and purpose. Now, um, if you became convinced that like teaching was not really doing much for society, and there, there were other things I probably should have said in that dialogue, but it was just so much happening, you know, so many different threads. But like, if you became convinced that that like mass education teaching in particular, where lots of students are sort of taking these courses against their will, they're being sold arguably a bill of goods by some of these universities through their advertising campaigns. They're being told how important it is for them to do this because it'll give them skills they'll use for the rest of their lives. And if you thought, well, geez, none of that's true. Like for most people, none of that's true. For some people, it is true. But for most people, it's not true. They get into debt, they drop out, they like their lives are made palpably worse by it. And then, sure, I can do my best within that institution. And maybe I'm a really good teacher. And as a result, I really do change a lot of people's lives despite all that. But a lot of people aren't really good teachers. <laughs> like I said to you, I think, in an email, the average teacher is average. And within the context of that system, you might feel like if you came to conclude that what it was producing was not what it said it was producing and people were like, their lives are being made worse off and society would, in general, be a lot better if many fewer people went to college and did other things like vocational education or whatever, then I could see where you might say, gosh, my integrity 
is threatened here. And now we're not even talking consequentialistically. Now I'm talking about integrity, right? I just don't want to be a part of this. And if you had that feeling, then it could be the sort of thing where like you, Dan Kaufman, you can continue to do it because despite the strictures you're operating within, you still make a big difference. But you might be exceptional. Maybe not. Maybe you don't think you are. Maybe you think actually you're above average, but there's a lot of people, even the average ones do great good. And if you have that view, then of course, what I say is going to look really odd. You know, the way you're saying it now, and I promise the audience we're not going to redo this again. I just wanted to just at the beginning because didn't get to it last time. Um, now, but now it almost talks, sounds to me like you're talking more eudaimonically and less in terms of, ob- less in terms of obligation. Because look, I mean, one of the things about obligation is if the arguments that you're running are, are, are obligation arguments, then it's not just an obligation for you to stop teaching. It's an obligation for other people to stop teaching. Mm-hmm. they are being unethical. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, I always run into these informal reductios. It just seems to me that any philosophical argument, according to which your average school teacher now is unethical, mm-hmm. I say is a reductio. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think that's, re- I don't think that's reasonable, but now it almost sounds to me like you're saying, no, this is really about a sort of, you know, sort of personal eudaimonism, right? I mean, it's sort of like, okay, if I no longer feel like I can, do this, then, then, then I'm not, you know, I, I, I need to, I need to do better in a sense for myself. Right. right? But that's not something then that's going to, that's going to entail sort of categorical oughts that apply now to others. Right. It, it, it sounds, it, I'm wondering, are, are you inclined to say that other people are obligated to not be teachers? Well, did you hear that Bing, by the way? No. I just got a, Okay, good. Cause I just got a text message and um, oh, I heard nothing. So yeah. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> So, so anyway, the short answer is I don't know. Remember what I said to start the essay. Lately, I've been wondering whether it's okay yeah, to be permissible. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair and enough. I mean that. It's yeah. not just a figure of speech. Part of the reason I wrote that essay, and I said you're, it in the comments. You're still working it out. Yeah, I'm trying to figure it out, right? Because I don't want the conclusion to be, it's yeah. not okay for me to be a philosophy professor. I would like it to be, no, Rob, you're doing something great, right? And I, have, I think I've told you off camera before, I'm not sure I want the morality everywhere approach to be true. Yeah. It's just that I see it as having really powerful reasons that I find it difficult to, um, to dispel. I guess because you bring to bear the arguments from people like Kaplan and stuff. So you sort of bring this sort of social science evidence mm-hmm. to bear on this question. Yeah. Now, if you concluded that indeed that, that social science evidence does entail that conclusion in your case, then you are you then in, do you view this through the lens of sort of moral obligatoriness? Would you then start saying that other people, you know, other people are are wronging the world by being school teachers or by being professors so, at universities and community colleges and and in other words, is it sort of maybe less severe? But you know, yeah, the the guy should stop selling crack and you should stop teaching. Yeah. Now, when I hear that, that sounds like a reductio. That just sounds like you, you went off the rail somewhere with your theorizing. Right? Well, it came to well. a banana's conclusion. But I'm wondering whether that's that you want to bite the bullet on that, whether you want to say, yes, that's absolutely right. The crack dealer should stop selling crack and the teacher should stop teaching. Here's um, – so one of the things – one of the reasons I don't love the analogy is Well, that, I, it's a matter of degree, but not – Right. Um, okay. First of all, let's get it clear. Yeah, if absolutely. I did say that, it would be a matter of degree. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I'm not trying okay. to straw man you. I'm just wondering if, 
you really are inclined to think about this in terms of obligation or whether it's more eudaimonic that you're thinking about this in terms of, right? Yeah. So a couple of things, two things I'll say. First, um, when I see my colleagues teaching, I don't think to myself, oh, I can't believe they're doing that. I don't think that. Right. Right. So just because it's less, it's not quite like selling crack on the corner. Right. right, It could be like that. Right. right? It's, you know, well, yeah. So, so here's, here's an analogy that, that, um, that's still too strong, but I'll, oh gosh, we're we're spending a lot of time on this, which I like to. It's all right. It's all right. It doesn't matter. But, but here's an analogy that, that, that is, um, somewhat similar. Imagine you are working for a video game company and you're making video games and then you come to conclude, you read studies, you read data, that although video games have some benefits, they might improve hand-eye coordination and they might help with some people's self-confidence. By and large, it's a huge time suck. And if people didn't spend the time on video games, they would be likelier to spend it on better, more efficacious, more character-building, whatever activities. And so if you- I don't know what the evidence for that would be, but- Oh, I don't, I don't, I'm just- Coming, yeah. you know. Let's say you thought that, right? Yeah. Right. And let's say, yeah, regardless of whether I really did have evidence or not, let's say I thought that. <laughs> thought that, um, then the people who continued to remain <laughs> in the industry, I might think to myself, well, geez, like, <clears throat> they just look at the evidence differently. They're wrong, but I can see how given their priors, why they're sort of given what they know, they're not, they're doing something that's harmful, but not necessarily wrong right? They're making society worse. They could be doing something better, but they're not in a position to sort of like be blamable for that because they just, they just aren't going to be moved by the evidence for pretty good reasons. When it comes to teaching, right? Like I'm, I'm definitely, I'm still not sure about Kaplan's evidence. I'm not an expert in educational psychology. Um, Kaplan isn't either, but he did spend seven years researching the book. But the he, book is very thorough. I mean, it's, it, you know, there's no question about it. Yeah. And he would email the researchers whose work he summarized yeah. and asked them, is yeah. this a good summary? Yeah. He was very scrupulous, I thought. And when I've been reading this new, not new book, this 2001 book, which was sort of state of the, state of the literature on transfer, far transfer, right? How good are people at, at applying what they learn in the classroom to outside of the classroom setting? It's very, um, depressing. <laughs> They're really, really terrible at it. And, and it's not just surveys. It's like they, they had 600 students at Arizona State University who were like majors in, uh, or who had taken a statistics course. And then they asked them questions at the beginning of the course and experts, statisticians asked them questions at the end and they saw like no market improvement. Yeah, they in their blew, and they blew it. Yeah. 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 And yeah. that's the sort of stuff that's like depressing. But as a teacher, you don't, you're not privy to that, right? Because yeah. you're only with your students for three months. You do see them improve for three months, but yeah. then it goes away for three months. Yeah. It's like if you were a personal trainer and you kept, and, and you know, if people were forced to take your personal training, most of them didn't want to be there and so just half-assed it. No. Ten, well, let's say 30% tried really hard and got improvements, but then after you left, you lost touch with them. They stopped doing it. They went back to exactly what they were. Like, And yeah. if you knew the way the system was organized was to keep on doing that, you'd be like, yeah. God, we should stop spending money forcing people to do personal training. Yeah. What a waste. Yeah. And then when yeah. you see your colleagues saying, we need to spend so much more money in higher education, we need to get more people in the college who don't want to be there. Yeah. Like, are you out of your mind? Like, yeah. this is not helping anybody, right? Yeah. And so do I think they're immoral... No, but to use a word that a lot of people have been using for me, I think they're a bit deluded. Um, and so, um, I'm, I don't, I don't, I, feel I don't know how, you know, I don't know how most people think about their teaching. I mean, I, I mean, probably I'm going to wind up being one of the more delusional ones on this because I take, put great stock in, in the teaching experience and the classroom experience in particular. Um, but I don't know how much people think they, 
you know, um, um, contribute. And you know, that, that, then, that then starts pushing us more in the direction of the morality everywhere problem, you know, because look, I mean, there's so many people mm-hmm. that are doing jobs that are just completely empty, right? I mean, it's just sort of completely, you know, rote or, or mechanical or, you know, assembly line or, or whatever. I'm sorry, I just hit the mic. And, um, you know, to say to all of them, you know, you're obligated to go do something better. Um, then start, that's, that's when I start to start getting off, off the specifics of teaching. Mm-hmm. I start getting on to this question of, uh, do we really need to, or want to start moralizing every aspect of what we do every I mean, minute gross. every day? And that brings us to the morality everywhere issue. So maybe you can, that we can use that as a segue to you wanted to talk about Singer because you think Singer has an argument for mm-hmm. the morality everywhere. Yeah. Position. So, so why don't you go ahead and, and describe that? So it starts with this arresting, in my opinion, thought experiment. Very famous, like which is in a very famous paper. Yeah, the paper is called Famine, Affluence, and Morality. 1973. Yeah, there was a famine in Bangladesh at the time. Yes. And he wrote this paper, like there was a famine in Bangladesh, and a lot of people like gave money to stop the famine or you know, to, to help people get food so they wouldn't starve to death. And I think what Singer said is, look, this people do give when it's brought to their attention, but this is happening all the time, all over the world. And when it's not brought to their attention, people just go back to what they're doing. And they, they also think of this as a matter of charity, but it's more than a matter of charity because charity implies that this is optional. If you do it, you're nice, but if you don't do it, there's nothing wrong with you. Right. He's like, no, there's something wrong with you. If you don't give money to family relief. Here's why. So he said, imagine you're sort of walking to work, walking to wherever, and you pass a pond. And in the pond, there's a child drowning. Now, you could easily save the child's life because you're a good swimmer. The child's not far away. He's light. You could easily take him out. But doing so would get your suit wet. Do you? I thought it was shoes. Shoes, uh, either way. I thought it was you had bought fancy Italian shoes or something. I could be wrong. I don't remember. Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe you're on your way to a job interview. You don't want to show up wet. And it's funny. Actually, these details matter a lot because- Yeah, they do. Depending on how I, I tell it to my students, you get very different reactions, yeah. right? So like, for example, here's what I say. I usually say you're on your way to a job interview and you have a nice suit on. And so if you should, are you obligated to save the child? And uh, you'll always have a few students who say no, right? Some students are very strong. Like my only obligations are not to hurt people. I have no obligations to help people, right? Mm-hmm. So they like take this absolutist line. Um, but most students say, yeah, I should. I should help the child. And I usually don't say, do you have an obligation? Because that language is usually kind of weird. Yeah, I just say should. should Yeah, I just say should. Ought. Ought. And and if I say, okay, and if you don't do it, do you think you've done something wrong by letting the child drown? And most of my students, like 95%, are going to say, yeah, I have done something wrong if I let the child drown. And when when I say it's for a job interview, they say, actually... If I'm wet, I have a great story to tell the job interview, so I'm likelier to get the job. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I don't want to confuse it with egoism, so I got rid of the job interview. I think the fancy Italian shoes is better. So, um, so anyway, so, so most people say, and like vast, vast numbers of people say, yes, I'm obligated to help yes. the child, even though it gets me wet, it takes effort, it gets my shoes wet, I still have to do it. It's a child's life. And what Singer says is that, okay. But the child's life is more val- important than my shoes. Yeah, that's right. Or my discomfort or my time or whatever. And then the next thing I do when I present it, I kind of go off book, but I present it like this. Okay, what if you didn't know the child? 
child is what I say to them. And I say, well, I assumed I didn't know the child. I said, so the fact that the child's a stranger doesn't matter. And they're like, yeah, it doesn't matter. If it's a stranger, you're still there. You still have to help the child. And I say, okay, great. So then I say, now let's imagine this is in the future. Wait, does the singer, I don't remember, does singer explicitly invoke a veil of ignorance over the case? Uh, he, I because think, singer's a consequentialist. And so yeah. if the child um, is a psychopath who has already murdered three people and is going to murder five more after you leave, then you should let her drown, right? Yeah. So does, well, he actually, impose, does, does he impose a veil of ignorance over the thought experiment? He doesn't, like, impose a veil of ignorance. He, one of the things he says is that whether or not you, the child is a stranger to you isn't morally significant, and whether or not the child is very far away is not morally significant. Right, because he's trying to set up to argue why you owe people in sub-Saharan Africa or Indonesia or whatever. Right. Yeah. Anybody who's suffering over the world. Yeah, yeah. go you, on. If, yeah. So anyway, and so then I change, like I said, I go off script, but I say, now imagine we're in the future. And in the future, there's, there's huge like oceans and lakes and stuff that we can walk past. And next to this ocean lake, there's a telescope. And you can look through the telescope and it'll show you the middle of the lake. You can't see it with your naked eye, but you can see it through this telescope. Now imagine you look through the telescope and you see the child drowning. And imagine that you can press a button and have like robot drones come and save the child if you pay like 25 cents. Are you obligated to do it? And I realize it's a fanciful experiment, but I'm just trying to get them to try to see that maybe distance isn't morally significant, or at least why you would think that. And they usually say, you know, they sort of laugh a bit, but they're like, yeah, sure. If, if you could do it that easily, then you're morally obligated to do it. And I say, okay, you know, here's the big twist of the knife. There's lots of people right now who are starving to death or who are dying from disease. And there are all sorts of charities you could give money to, to allay their condition, right? You could get food to them. You could get micro-investing to them, et cetera, et cetera. So are you obligated to give to the charities? And in particular, is it wrong for you to like go see a movie or go buy nice clothes or go have a fancy dinner instead of giving to charity? Because after all, when you do that, what you're basically saying is that my dinner and my having fun is more important than this child's living. And so I sort of put it like that. And usually I get, the response I usually get is this. You can't trust those charities. And yeah, that's kind of irrelevant though. I mean, you could just stipulate that the charities are all perfectly true. I mean, in other words, that, that doesn't engage with the arg that doesn't engage with the problem that's being posed. Yeah. So that doesn't engage with the problems being posed. And what I say is, okay, so you think the problem is the charities are untrustworthy. So then don't you have an obligation to research the charities at least? Isn't that your moral obligation instead of doing the fancy dinner? And then you have occasionally some students who say, oh, I've researched them all. They're all untrustworthy, but I know this student's just making that up. Right. So, so, so the point I take Although I will have to say that you know this you've just identified by the way mm -hmm. pretty valuable skill of that's that is at least in principle can be cultivated through philosophical uh, classwork and that is to be able to tell to be able to start seeing what the relevant questions and problems are you know what I mean and what the non relevant ones are um, um, because that is that is not that's that's my students will do the same sort of thing. Yeah, they'll begin with sort of challenges or re responses that are clearly n missing the, the what's being asked, right? But they get better at it as time goes on. You know, halfway into the semester, they're much. I'm going to get much less of that sort of answer, 
And, oh, by really? the end, and by the end, I get virtually none of it. Yeah, because we've done so much by then. And they've heard that so many times and they've been caught in those kinds of mistakes so many times that they kind of get rehabituated or whatever, however you want to describe it to sort of, you know, see it more. Clear. Anyway, I don't mean to reopen that up, but it just occurred to me as you were saying this, that this strikes me as actually quite a valuable thing to be able to do. And that is to identify what the relevant What's the relevant challenge? What's the what's the challenge? Relevant challenge being made, and then therefore, what are the relevant sorts of counter 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 moves? Right. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway. So so yeah. this is so so one of one of the criticisms then is so so like I say, look, even if you are skeptical of charities, you still have conceded that you have to do something about this, and that it's wrong for you to just eat your fancy clothes or have your fancy clothes, eat your fancy dinners, and stuff like that, and. So then, you know, you get a bunch of different things. But, like, one response that Singer himself responds to in the paper is, look, I, I can only do so much, right? Like, I, my obligation is to do a sort of certain amount that then covers my bases. And then if other people don't do their part, that's on them. It's not on me. And so what, what Singer says is, like, so what I analogize it to is this. Imagine that instead of, um, instead of one child drowning, there's three ch- children drowning. And you can't save all three. You could save two, but you can't save all three. And you are seeing this situation, but so are two other people. And you say, come on, let's save the children. But the other two say, nah, don't want to. We'll get my fancy Italian shoes wet. So imagine you save one and you know they're not saving another, but you could save another after you save the first one. Are you obligated to, to save the other or, or do you, or can you just say, well, since they haven't saved it, I've done my part. So I'll just let those two children drown. Yeah. And a lot of people have a strong intuition that no, even though they're being bad, you still have an obligation to do something to save the child. Yes. So it's sort of like this maximizing thing. And what Singer basically gets to is that like, he says your obligation is to go to the point of equilibrium. Yeah. Right? Yeah, he, he says he, he says your obligation is to live just barely above the level of a Bengali refugee. That's what he says. He says two things, right? He says there's a weak version and a strong version of the principle. But he thinks the strong version is the better version. Yeah, he says something like, I myself suspect the strong version is the better one right. or something. That's yeah. why he lives in Princeton and Manhattan, because he's living right below above the standard of a Bengali refugee. I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. Um, I think he's a fraud, but anyway, go ahead. Well, fraud <laughs> might not be the worst thing to be. Um, but anyway, um, the, the weak version of the principle is this. If you can easily stop a terrible thing without giving up something of great significance, then you are morally obligated to stop the terrible thing. Right. That's the, the strong, general principle. Yeah. Yeah. And the strong version is even if you have to give up something of great value, as long as it's of less value than the terrible thing, That's right. you have to give that up. That's right. And so, I don't see how you can hold the first one without being sliding into the second. Oh, I never thought of that. Um, I just don't see how the first, I don't, I don't see how the first one is sustainable. Once you accept this logic, it seems to me you slide into the second one pretty much inevitably. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe I have to think more about that, but so, so Jason Brennan of Bleeding Heart Libertarians, um, he, he has a response to Singer, which is that, okay, an individual dinner, an individual set of clothing is not something that is of great moral significance. But the principle iterates, since I'm always in the situation where I can always give up something of 
minor moral significance to stop something of major moral significance, then what the principle entails is giving up all the fancy dinners and all the nice clothing. And, and sure, I don't have to necessarily give up my organs, but I should always like, I should never go out to eat. I should never watch movies. I should, right. you know, et cetera. And he says that actually is a serious sacrifice, giving up all those things. So what he says is that the principle, the weak version, all it sort of gets you to do is that you should sometimes give up fancy dinners and sometimes give up nice clothing. And he thinks most people already do that. Yeah. And so that's his response to it. Larry Temkin, I think, has a more interesting response because Larry Temkin deals with the strong version. And Larry, what he does is he gets you, he, he enlists your intuitions that spoke in favor of the principle against it. So here's what he does. He says, imagine you saw this child drowning, okay? And, you know, you'd have to get your clothes wet to save her. But you also know that there's five other children who need organs, Okay. And this child happens to be a perfect match for those five other children. So aren't you morally obligated to murder the child after you save her from drowning? Yeah. And, and he's like, all of a sudden, this doesn't seem nearly as intuitively clear, right? It's one thing to give up stuff to save somebody. It's another to do terrible things yeah. to save somebody. And Singer doesn't have any way of kind of yeah. um, forcing you not to give the terrible things. Yeah. Yeah. And so... I think that's an important objection, what Temkin does, but like, there's ways, I don't know if you can get around it or not, but like, Kant wouldn't himself be victim to that objection, right? Because Kant thinks your negative duties outweigh your positive duties. Right. So you should contribute to others' permissible happiness unless you have to do something intrinsically immoral to do so, and then you're not allowed to. And I find myself pretty drawn to that as a way of thinking about my moral obligations, that like, my negative ones are more important than my positive ones, but I have strong positive ones. Yeah. Right. And so that's sort of like my sort of where I'm at right now. I'm sort of more in the Kantian yeah. mold. Now, what's your problem? You accept, with, the, you accept though, the, the morality everywhere implication. Yeah. I even accept the view that everybody's central project ought to be to be a, like, I don't want to say as morally good as possible because that's weird. I don't like talking about maximizing language, but there's a, a Alistair Norcross has this essay called Scalar Consequentialism where he's like, look, it's not that you have to choose the, the outcome that's going to maximize goodness in every situation, but you have to, but there's like, there's like options relevant to you. Right. And, um, and I don't remember exactly how it goes, but it's something like, it's more like you meet a threshold. And as long as you get to this threshold of goodness, that's what you're obligated to do. Yeah. It would still change people's lives a lot, but yeah. the yeah. whole thing about calculating, maximizing yeah. utility over the heat death of the universe, let's just drop that. Cause we can't do that anyway. So let's just think about, yeah. So anyway, yeah. so the, the Norcross version combined with the Kantian constraints is sort of where I'm at right now, where I do think, yeah, morality, moral reasons are more important than any other kind of reasons. You, and you accept the sort of logic of the, of the, 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 dr- the drowning example. Yeah, in the sense that... Um, I just have a question. Why, why are we talking? You and I? Oh, yeah. and why am I not uh, going out and helping more? Yeah, why aren't you right now in a soup kitchen? Right. Um, I guess, so, I guess my, I guess my first response is I actually don't believe anybody really actually thinks this because well, it's not on. evident. It's not evident in their behavior. So let me stop you there. Um, I think they're either lying to themselves or lying to everybody else. What do you think about people who are worried about environmental catastrophe? I think they're you crazy. Think they don't believe it. I think they're crazy but or, do you think- or they're playing games. But so you don't think they actually believe it? No. 
I don't, okay. I don't believe. I don't believe you're talking about the oh, everything's going to be underwater in ten years. I don't think. Well, anybody, no, I don't think anybody no. actually thinks that. No. More like um, there's a certain number of points where we reach those points, and they're like points of no return. Where once you pass them, some pretty bad things are going to happen to the world, and like millions of people are going to die, and they like sounds they like see- pretty much all. It sounds pretty much like every era of human civilization. <laughs> right, but prevent. So what, so. But what's the, what does that have to do with this? I'm not sure I'm getting the relevance of it. Right. So here's here's so I'm just asking why. If you actually really think this, why are you? Why are we having this conversation? Why aren't you in a soup kitchen right now? Right. So a couple of things. And actually, why would you be in the soup kitchen? Because you know, I'm sure there's something better you could be doing even than that, right? Yeah. Um, so then, what? I, I'm not. I guess I don't understand what seems to be your apparent daily behavior. If you actually say that you actually believe this, I guess I don't understand why you why you're acting the way you're acting. So I want to make a distinction first of all between belief and alief. Have you heard about this distinction? Is it going to be? Is it going to annoy me? Almost certainly. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll do it anyway. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, I have no idea. I've never heard of that. So it comes from I think Tamar Zabo Gendler, and here's here's the case. Okay. So take a bedpan. Okay. And it's, it's a bedpan that's been wrapped in, uh, you know, what do you call it? Plastic wrap. It's a new bedpan, never been used, okay? It's, it's utterly sterile, utterly clean. Pour some water into it. Ask somebody who knows it's sterile and been clean, are you going to drink out of this? A lot of them, they've done this experiment for what it's worth. A lot of them are, like, reluctant to drink from the bedpan. Even if they know it's sterile, now let me tell you the relevance of this. Do they believe it's a sterile bedpan? Yes, they believe it's a sterile bedpan, but they don't A-leave it. And what does that mean? They have patterns of behavior which seem to indicate they don't fully believe what they intellectually know to be true, right? Or to take another case, the Miller-Lyer illusion. You have these two lines, right? They look different lengths. One looks longer than the other one, but I know that they're the same length. My knowing they're the same length doesn't change the way the Miller-Lyer illusion appears. One line still looks longer than the other. How does this help? help? Here's how it helps. When you say, if you truly believed it, you would act completely differently, that doesn't necessarily follow because you can believe something without A-leaving it, right? Forget about my counterfactual. Okay, which one? Forget about turning into a counterfactual. I'm just asking you. Yeah. Oh, weakness of will. Why are you sitting here? Weakness of will. I see. And that's not disingenuous at all. Who cares? Well, I do because I'm not playing a game. I'm actually trying to decide what I th- what is I think is really the case. I'm not trying to find some set of tricks by which I can get a conclusion to become true, right? I'm I am or warranted. I'm actually trying to determine how I should actually live. And when you tell me, "Oh, well, this is how I should live." And I say, "Yeah, but why aren't you living like that?" "Oh, well, weakness of will." That's just facile. Right. I mean, that's just that's just unresponsive in any serious way. That's just somebody playing games. Right. That's Hold on a serious. second. That's Hold on a second. Serious. Have you ever met somebody who tried to go on a diet and didn't succeed? And if you said why and they said weakness of will, are you going to say that's just facile? You just don't believe it. You just don't really think you should go on a diet. You, like, think, that's, you think those are you really think that those are analogous in, in the relevant sense? Absolutely. Here, let me let me say why. I, I it's really hard to be moral. Okay, I think it's really. hard. I don't to think be. you're trying very hard. Well, maybe not. I have to think. I mean, I would, I would, I would, I would really, really like to hear a lot about this terrible weakness. Um, 
that force, okay. that, force, that forces you to sit in chairs and talk to people on video rather than walking down the street to the soup kitchen. I'd love to hear uh-huh. a non-disingenuous account of this terrible weakness you suffer. Well, hold on. when you say disingenuous, okay, first of all, uh, so you want me to get into my like personal psychology? Not at all. I think you see the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that, look, someone who is trying to lose weight, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, and is having difficulty. There are so many different reasons that could be, and there's so many different things that, that come into play with, in a sense, food and, and pleasure and rewards and all this sort of stuff, that stuff that's very, you know, very clear and, and, and articulable, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not seeing the comparable story that explains to me this terrible weakness that keeps you sitting in a chair rather than walking down the street. I do see the credible story in which the person, you know, who's had a bad relationship with food their whole lives and who, and, 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 you know, and who, and who has, you know, terrible self body image and, and, you know, you put the, you know, the donuts and the soda and all that. I'm not seeing the comparable story for why Mr. Philosophy Professor in Princeton, New Jersey, just suffers such catastrophic weakness that he just can't help but keep being a professor at Princeton or having an apartment in Manhattan. He's just so weak. I mean, he's just so terribly weak. I just, I'm sorry. A, I don't believe it. And B, I think you'll find that the public will react very negatively to that kind. That's just special pleading, right? That's not serious. Well, Hold on, uh, I'm not. And to compare okay. it with a, with a person with an eating problem is actually obnoxious, right? It's 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 trying to play on something that's really a serious thing, as if there's some moral equivalent to having <laughs> having a food eating disorder. Or, I'm sorry, man. I just I didn't I say eating not only disorder. Not I buy it. I think it's really kind of awful and a, kind of an awful move. Well, you've moved it. Actually, I said go on a diet. I didn't say an eating disorder. Well, but a lot of people who have real difficulty losing weight over long periods of time, it's partly because they have a very negative relationship with food that they, that they need to work through, right? It's not just – or it may be because of a physiological problem, right? Well, I'm not one of these people that sort of you know, you know, criticizes people who are having trouble losing weight for being weak-willed or something. And so, I mean, that's just not usually what I, what I found to be the case in the examples that I've seen. But, I mean, I just really asked a simple question. I mean – Please describe to me this terrible weakness that forces you to sit in chairs rather than go down to the local soup kitchen. Okay. So first of all, do you think I'd be best at being in a soup kitchen? Oh, I have no idea. Once you get to the soup kitchen, now I'm going to ask you why you aren't doing something even better than that. Um, Because I think the whole thing is a reductio. What you should be asking is why aren't I an investment banker who gives all of his money to charity? Yeah, the problem is is that that industry does other terrible things that have terrible effects entirely separate from the money you give. I I, I think that the logic that Singer employs actually is a reductio ad absurdum. Um, um, I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't I don't think I don't think you can follow it and end up anywhere other than in contradictory and or hypocritical and or just weird places. It's an informal reductio, but. Well, any moral standard that's very high, it's going to be very difficult to live up to it. And even the people who endorse it aren't going to live up to it all the time. Yeah, but I think that that's a serious problem. I don't. Like, ethics, you, is pra- ethics is a practical discipline. Uh, sure. And so some people, they change their behavior because of ethics, but they don't change it as far as their principles allow. I mean, Peter Singer gives away 20% of his money to charity. 
That's oh, a lot. Got a, he's got a lot of money. I mean, you know. Well, even if he has a lot of money, I bet you most people of his income level don't do that. I understand that, but then that's not the view that's in famine, affluence, and morality. Well, sure, but the point is that it has still changed his behavior for the better, and quite a lot, right? Like, the average person in America gives, like, 2 to 5% of their money to charity. Why do you have to have that? that? I don't see why you have to have that theory to be able to do, to do that. I mean... But you seem to be thinking that if you have a moral theory that you can't live up to, then it's There's a reductive. Probably something wrong. There's probably something wrong with it, yeah. Well, it's aspirational, I suppose. I mean, you're trying to live up to it, and you get closer and closer, but there's a lot of things about human nature that are hard to resist. Like when you said, let me talk about the diet. I go on diets, okay? I try to lose the last 10 pounds. It's really hard. Um, Is that weird? Like, I feel like a lot of people can relate to that. No, but I don't think that's weird. I think that saying that you're so weak that you can't resist doing a video dialogue instead of going and working in 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 a shelter I, I do find that weird. Well, okay. So hold on. So you're, are you then giving up the point that the analogy is inept? No, well, I, I don't understand but, that. No, it's, so, it's so, inept because I understand the relevant sense of weakness in the sense of uh, food. I don't understand it in the sense of doing videos instead of going to soup kitchens. Okay. So it's fun to do a video, just like it's fun to eat delicious food. It tastes good. A video dialogue is something that um, sort of stirs your thinking. It's not something you can do all the time. There's more at stake, right? Because it's for the public. So it feels much more like a competition rather than just like an Listen, idle I chatter. Think you do all these things. <laughs> but I'm, I'm telling you, yeah. uh, why don't I give all my money to charity, right? Like, well, um, to some degree, I think uh, I, I do believe in a kind of concentric circle, right? Where... Um, uh, what is it called? The circle of concern. Right. right. Well, that's not singer then, though. No, but I'm not a singerian, right? right. I, I might believe in morality everywhere, but just not in a singer's way. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I do think I have stronger obligations to my son and to my wife than to strangers, right? Right. And cetera, et cetera. I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I think that, like, um, and here's the other thing about Peter Singer, which sort of relates to me doing this dialogue. A lot of people think Peter Singer has done a lot of important good through advocacy. Right. He's 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 written this stuff about animal welfare. He coined the term speciesist. He has like all the famine, affluence and morality thing. He's arguably the, the cause behind the effective altruism movement. He yeah, did that. He's the most important moral philosopher of of since of our generation and probably two generations. Um, I think there's no right. question. He's had an enormous effect. I agree. Absolutely. Arguably, he's had he, he would have he has more effect as a public philosopher than as working in a soup kitchen. Now. That's not going to be true about me, right? Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. um, Oh, you froze. I'm going to wait till you unfreeze. Am I frozen? Because I haven't seen anything. You're freezing. I can't hear anything. Hold on. Okay. I think it was on your end. Yeah, it says my internet connection is unstable. I saw you freeze. It's all right. It was very short. If if it happens in any any length, I can pause the video. Okay. (laughs) And then just start from where we come back, so... Let me know if it happens again. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I guess what I'm wondering is, and then we should probably move on. Um, well, here's what I here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, you know, if you ask me, here's this here's this perfectly nice young man, right? Um, and you're younger than me, so I can call oh, you. Oh, you're talking about me. Yeah, okay. you're younger than me, so I can I can say that to you. Yeah. Um, here's this perfectly nice young man, 
And here's what he does, okay? Sometimes he does video dialogues with his soon-to-become new buddy, Dan. (laughs) Sometimes he goes to the church and he goes and helps feed the homeless. Sometimes he does this and sometimes he does that. Now, if you ask me, what do you think best describes this person's ethos? Why is this person athlete? What I would say is this is a person who believes that there are any, there are a number of different things that are of value and that he should, that he, he's going to pursue, uh, he's going to pursue them all. The other explanation is he really only thinks that morale, the moral considerations have supreme value. And the reason he's doing all these other things is he's just too damn weak. Now, if you ask me, which strikes me as the more credible characterization of a person, at least a person who's normal and not crazy, I would say obviously the first. Okay. Okay. I agree with that. So um, why, 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 why not embrace the normal man? Why, 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 why insist on this, this extreme view that winds up then forcing everybody to characterize you in a way that just sounds so unnatural and, and untrue to real lived experience, right? Okay, so a couple of things. All considerations are not the only ones, and they're not always overriding. That's the simplest explanation for why you pursue a plurality of goods, right? Well, let me ask you this. Um, well, I, I'll not, first of all, before I ask you a question, I need to respond to what you said. Yes, yes, um, So I said I earlier distinguished between belief and alief, right, where how you behave indicates what you might believe and what you consciously think also indicates what you might believe, and the two sometimes separate. When you ask somebody, what do they really believe at the end of the day? I think that's actually kind of a really huge question, right? Like when people ask me, sometimes people ask me, so do you believe in God? I will sometimes say, I don't know. Only God knows. And what do I mean by that? I know this is me. You don't like this part of me. You're going to tell me I need therapy, whatever. But here's what I mean. If I don't I were, understand that, what you just said. <laughs> well, here's what I mean. Um, if I... Like sometimes I do bad things, right? If I truly thought God were watching me all the time and would be very hurt by my doing that or, or that I'm spurning somebody who loves me unconditionally, why would I do those things? Yeah. You must not believe in God. Yeah. Or like the Columbine shooter. I know this is a tangent, but supposedly, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but supposedly he asked one of the teenagers he murdered, um, do you believe in God? And it was apparently clear to her that if she said yes, he'd kill her. And she said yes, and he killed her. Shot her in the head. That's if he had said that to me, do you believe in God? I don't know what I would have said. Yeah. I might have said no. Absolutely right? Just because I, I don't want to get killed, right? And so would that mean I don't really believe in God? Or would no, that mean... of course not. Of course not. Right. But the point is, is that I do stuff all the time at odds with my professed beliefs. And I don't think that means I don't really hold the professed beliefs. I think what that means is that I don't hold the professed beliefs with, I suppose, 100% conviction, right? And that... I, they, they ebb and they flow, right? Sometimes I have them stronger than others. Other times, like, you know, I was really looking forward to this dialogue. And, and as I was like going to, 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 to hear, I thought to myself, oh, geez, I shouldn't buy this soda, right? Maybe I shouldn't, you know, maybe, but then again, I need to keep my throat. And so, you know, I was thinking a lot about my everyday decisions. Why shouldn't you buy the soda? Maybe I should save the money and give it to somebody. Maybe I should help my health. Maybe I should have water. Um, but, oh, but, <laughs> well, I, 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 the thing I think about most is it's too uh, nice to be so racked. You see, <laughs> but well, I mean, really, I mean, do you really think is that really a very is that a good answer to what I asked you? I mean, what I asked you was here's two characterizations of you. Mm-hmm. 
No, I remember the question. The How an- is that a good answer to the question of, whether, of why my first characterization just doesn't better describe you than the second one? Oh, well, here's why. I think, I think it's clearly the case that I must think at various moments of my life that certain things are more important than morality, okay? Otherwise, how do you explain why I do what I do? But on the other hand, there is this conscious belief that morality is the most important thing. Like, like you talk about, look at how this person behaves. He goes to church, he gives to the homeless, he also like has a dialogue, so he values lots of different things. Yeah. Another part of how I behave is how I think, right? That's it's something I do. It's yeah, true of course. Of me. Yeah, yeah. It's, your, it's your business. Yeah. Right? And it's also uh, my reactive attitudes are part of me too. The difference between somebody who eats meat and feels guilty about it versus somebody who doesn't eat, who, who eats meat and doesn't feel guilty about it is a real difference, right? There is a reactive attitude difference. There is something that distinguishes them such that one has the guilt and one doesn't. And one thing that could explain that difference is the fact that one of them thinks that the arguments in favor of refraining from eating factory farm foods are really compelling. And that person has like, because he finds them actually compelling, it causes him to feel guilt when he eats factory farm food. Um, so he does believe it to some degree, right? And part of the reason he believes it to some degree is that he thinks there are good reasons for it. No, but that's the, but if the, the point of the contrast between the two characterizations was, the first was that your behavior is to be explained by the fact that you, that you, that you hold a plurality of things in value and you, and you pursue them uh, accordingly. The other is that you hold one thing of supreme value and all the rest is uh, explainable by appeal to weakness. Oh, okay. What I said was that the first strikes me as a far more plausible, credible, natural, normal interpretation of you. Yeah. The latter, and I'm not getting what, what's to be said for the latter. Okay, so let me, okay, good. So here's what I'll say. I think I should hold it as of supreme importance. I guess I don't, because if I did, I would always act according to supreme importance, except in weird cases. But I think I should. Okay. And so, um, yeah. Okay. But you don't think I should. No. But that then brings us, I guess, to the further down the road, right? So that gets us now to things like like the moral saints, like, like Susan Wolf, and like this whole idea of plurality of goods um, and um, sort of, you know, I almost feel a little bit like – well, let me, let me scratch that. That's Weasley. It seems to me that there is clearly some tension between a more eudynomic view and this kind of very heavy obligatory-based morality, right? Because the heavily obligatory-based morality that we're just talking about now is almost always going to entail extreme behavior, right? It's going to, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to, um, it's going to always work against the kind of healthy balance that that at least Aristotelian forms of eudaimonism uh, uh, recommend, and so um, that's just the one thing is that is that as is, is that I I I find much more compelling the eudaimon the eudynamic approach to to ethics than the uh, modern moral approach. Can I stop um, you for a second? Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. Do you, do you think? And I don't I don't know our your listeners as well as you do, do you think we should explain what the eudaimonic approach well, is? Well, we can. I mean, listen, the, the, the viewers are pretty sophisticated, but let's just say that, um, and I've done so many dialogues with Massimo about eudaimonism because, you know, he wrote this book on how to be a Stoic and, and, and um, 
we've had whole dialogues where we contrasted Stoic with Aristotelian uh, eudaimonism. We had a dueling essays on it, but I mean, I'm happy to sort of say a little bit about it, or you can if you want. I mean, the way I see it is that you know the 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 eudaimonic uh, sort of view of ethics really is centered around um, what it is for people to flourish um, uh, and takes into full account the full anthropological reality of a human being um, and all the different ways, the, all the different vectors that on which a human being can flourish, right? Um, and to flourish is simply to do well whatever it is one, uh, one, what one is designed to do or one can do or however you want to construe that sort of teleological uh, uh, frame of reference. Um, whereas the modern moral philosophical view is, 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 is concerned with, with obligation and with duty. Um, what, what are you obligated to do? What ought you to do? What is blameworthy if you do not do? Um, and um, thus tends to focus on actions. Um, yeah. And for a number of reasons, I'm not very enamored with the modern moral obligatory philosophy point of view. I mean, part of the reason has to do with the fact with things that I raise in my paper that I think I asked, told you about called prescription reason and force. Um, um, uh, and that is that I just failed to see the force of these imperatives. Um, I just don't see, I just don't see when you, you know, when you, when you say there's sort of this tremendous obligation, I just, I guess I just, I, I, I don't feel the force of it. Um, but secondly, I also I also rejected for sort of Anscomian sorts of reasons, and that is I don't think that you actually have the conceptual resources to cash these obligations out. They they, they depend upon. Well, you might because you're a theist, um, right. but I don't believe Singer does, um, or any yeah. other. Singer is a non-cognitivist. I think any other atheist. Yeah, and I don't know how that's supposed to work either. Um, exactly. Um, Bernard Williams always said that Singer spent too, way too much time. Uh, hectoring people in far too little time actually arguing for his own views. And I tend to agree with that. Um, um, Singer, Williams thought Singer was a pretty lousy philosopher. And I, I tend to, I tend to, but maybe a very effective moral, uh, if you like those causes, sure. I mean, if those are, you know, well, famine relief is a pretty good cause. I think Singer, Singer did a whole dialogue with Robert Wright, where he was talking about how nobody should donate money to museums. And, um, and, you know, I, 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 you know, it's just, you know, but anyway, so okay, I'm more that. inclined towards a eudynamic sort of way of looking at things. And I do think that there is a definite tension because this focus on obligation and this idea of moral reason, moral obligations always being overriding of all other considerations winds up producing very extreme people and behaviors of people mm-hmm. that I think are, are going to be in tension with a eudynamic Right. And that, yeah. that's sort of what Wolf is getting at. Right. So Wolf wants to say, look, you know, the, the moral universe that the singerite, let's say, mm-hmm. wants is one in which there are no great clarinet players, in which there are no great tennis players, in which there are no great chefs, in which there are no great anythings other than moral doers. Right. And she argues, and I agree. I don't even think you have to argue. I just think I think it's sort of obvious that would just be that just be a world that would be much less appealing to live in. I mean, I just wouldn't want to. Okay, you know, I I want to say a lot here, but good. yeah, yeah. I I I really like Wolf's paper. I think it's devastating. I don't think it was ever 
like Anscombe's paper, I don't think anybody ever adequately responded to it. I think they just, there's a sort of tendency in philosophy when a really strong challenge is made is just to act like it never happened and just keep going on doing whatever you were doing anyway. I feel the oh, same. I feel, I feel, I feel that that happened with Anscombe. Nobody has ever, in my view, su- successfully answered the arguments that she puts in modern moral philosophy. And, um, and, uh, and I don't think anybody's really successfully answered Wolf either. Um, 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 so anyway, what do you, what, what, what is your view on this idea that there's a tension between the eudaimonic and the moral, the, the, the heavy moral view? And there's at least some good reason to think that a world in which a world governed by the eudaimonic principles is a lot better world than the world governed by these kinds of very hard line yeah. moral obligations. So um, I have a lot to say about this. I'm not sure what I say is going to be consistent. Okay. So if it's inconsistent, that's, it's not great, but I'll have to try to figure out how to resolve it. But here's the first thing I want to say. I'm going to operate with this like toy theory of the history of humanity. And it's going to go like this for about 200,000 years. We evolved in certain circumstances that were the same pretty much for most of that 200,000 years until we got to like the Neolithic era and we started agriculture and farming. So we were in hunter gatherer groups for a long time. And then we got farming and then everything changed in 10,000 years. Things changed super quickly. And the kind of society we live in today is highly unnatural to our forebears and to our evolutionary history. For instance, just a small example. I know I don't need to prove this point, but a small example is we were evolved to want to eat sweet things as much as possible because they were really scarce and high in calories. And now they're highly abundant. And so that, that tendency of ours is counterproductive because it makes us eat too much sugar. I'll just say one thing very, very quickly. This is not even an argument. I want to, I'm worried about the uses of the word natural in these contexts. I mean, I I agree. I mean, you can always, So so I'm not going to, I just wanted to sort of say that sort of, you know, However you want to articulate, I think that this is articulatable without uh, appealing to the natural. Um, and I would be a little, if I was going to be, if we were just talking about this, I'd worry about the use of natural or unnatural to describe anything that's done by a natural organism, right? Um, um, but anyway, it doesn't matter for these purposes. But anyway, go on, go on. I'm yeah, sorry. So, so my theory, and I haven't like written about this or anything, but my theory is that our moral norms and our eudaimonistic norms evolved in circumstances where the two could coincide fairly easily. But now that we've gotten to this point where, where it's so much easier to like move sums of money across the world, where there's all this information about how people all over the world are feeling and you could do something about that. I think there's really a kind of fracture between eudaimonia and morality such that the two are at odds with each other. So you agree with me on this? Yeah, I agree with you that being moral means you have to give up some flourishing, right? That like, that's part of the reason why it's hard. And part of the reason why well, more really- than that, it points, it points in a very different direction for, uh, for civilization than a focus on, in other words, yeah. it, it entails a mono, a kind of a monochromaticizing of human social life mm-hmm. from yeah. what, in a eudaimonic would be a much more uh, 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 I don't know what the other, what's the opposite of monochromatic um, polychromatic yeah right we, 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 you know in other words um, it, it, it points towards a sort of a one note Charlie kind of society 
Yeah, but let, let me just... I, I don't see any way to, just, to, to sort of recommend over the other kind, right? Other than in a question-begging way by saying it's more moral, right? Um, but if you just appeal to sort of common intuition, which ultimately is what all philosophical conclusions are determined by, right? Because ultimately the arguments rest on premises that are either intuitively plausible or not. I mean, I just don't think anyone actually really wants to, would want to live in such a place, right? I mean, I think Wolf is really right in the sense when she says that the moral saint is really an unappealing person, right? Yeah. So let me, let me give, I, I think there are some people who'd want and to live And the world in of the moral saint is an unappealing world, right? Yeah. So let me talk about that. There are some people who I think would want to live in the world of moral saints. Yeah, but they're, but they're, but they're. But you haven't, haven't I told you who they are. Yeah, the people starving to death. <laughs> they would really like it if more more of us were moral saints, giving them money or food to help them not starve to death. I don't know if I think that's true. Okay, well, so that might be a big difference between us. And I've sometimes wondered, like, how so much time have you spent in like third world environments? Because I've actually spent quite a bit. No, in third world environments, no time. Yeah, I've actually spent quite a bit of time. Um, okay, and and so tell me what you think. I, I don't find any difference in the ultimate aims. In other words, um, um, well, that's words, why I figured they would not want to starve to death. No, of course. I mean, nobody wants to starve to, but that's not the point. Uh huh. That's not the point, right? Okay. I mean, look, because look, even what, look, the logic of moral sainthood. Yeah. Which is, look, the same logic as morality everywhere, right? I mean, do we, we, do we at least agree that morality everywhere entails moral sainthood as an ideal? Hold on. Uh, oh, no, I actually don't agree about that. Oh, okay. I'll tell you why. Okay, because I was, what I was going to say was, even once there's no more starving people, that morality everywhere logic still is going to push a kind of a narrowing, graying, a monochromaticizing of life in a way that, no, I don't think that the poor people who are living there now, the reason they want to stop being starving is so that they can start doing these other stuff. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So let me talk about that. Um, Because like one thing, so I thought what you're going to say. They don't all want to turn into moral saints themselves. They want to be able to go to the movies. For sure. But but that's a good thing. No, and and that is a good thing. Movies are great. But not in your view, it isn't. (laughs) No, I didn't. No, 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 no. Nobody should ever want to go to the movies on your view. No, no, that doesn't follow. Here, let let me tell you. No, Dan, Dan, (laughs) calm down. Oh, go, go, go. So uh, there, there, there's this. So there's this insight that Kant has that I I like, and I know who cares what he says. Is it right? Yeah, I think it's right. Here's what it is. Same. Um, if you make morality your life's central project, it's possible you will become so unhappy that you repudiate morality. That's one of the things Kant says. So he says we need Spielraum, right? We need playroom. We need an area to ourselves where we can yes. pursue our own projects and do what yes. we want to do without worrying yes. about the moral implications. Yes. And I think he has moral reasons for this. The thought is that if you make everybody morally monomaniacs, they're going to burn out on morality and give up. Yeah. And that's a fact of human nature. Yeah. So I do. Th- the reason I don't think morality everywhere leads to moral saints is because you can be uh, aware of this fact. I think it's a fact that overemphasizing the morality too much is going to make people burn out and, and turn away from it. You know, and, but you do know that Wolf has replied to this objection, right? It's in the essay. Uh, yeah, but didn't you think that was the most interesting objection to her essay? I don't know whether she thinks it's the most interesting, you, but she, but you. She, uh, well, I, I, look, I certainly think it's the only one that I've heard that even, ha- that even makes a dent, 
right? But I think her answer is very strong, and that is, look, let's take that as an, you know, that's an empirical claim, first of all, right? It's an empirical claim about what people actually need and what they can take and what they can't take and how much do-goodism they can do before they have to have a little party, right? Right, and it's going to differ from person to person. But that's still going to be a world where there's no champion tennis players, no grandmasters, no great, no, no, no three Michelin star chefs and no, because certainly happiness the ability to go on being moral next week only requires a little vacation. It doesn't require flourishing in the manner that a eudaimonist would say that, that, that is, is desirable. Right. In other words, you're still going to have a pretty gray monochromatic world, even with, um, the 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 moral saint you know taking his weekly holiday right um that's not going to get you a wimbledon champion right that's not going to get you and so i i don't I actually don't think it really makes any difference at all i don't it doesn't really change the argument at all um and and ultimately i don't think really succeeds in in breaking into into wolf's argument but look i think you know if you're a kantian i don't think kant's view entails morality everywhere well, Kant's view is that I mean, there's a whole range of behaviors that have no moral standing at all. Um, sure, he, things he that said, are done in accordance with duty have no moral standing. Well, as, as long as they're not done from duty. No, things that are done from duty are morally positive. Right, I things said things that are done contrary to duty are morally negative, but things that are done in accordance with duty are morally not neutral. Right, no, no, things that are done in accordance with duty and not from duty. Yes. So um, he doesn't believe in morality. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff we do that has no more moral valence at all. Well, the example. So this is tricky. Uh, the example he gives is um, whether you give alms to the beggar with your left hand or your right hand. That has no moral valence, right? And then the other thing is that he says we have to make it our maxim, our imperfect duties, to contribute to others' permissible happiness and to not let our talents rust, to improve ourselves. And he says, we have Spielraum with that. And then this is really contested among interpreters what he means. Does he mean that basically the only check on how much you're supposed to improve yourself or help others is you're just not violating your negative duties, in which case it's like a maximizing version of the having those maxims? Or does he just mean you have to make it your, like a maxim you endorse that, hey, I have to make part of my life helping others. And I have to make part of my life improving myself. And then I can have spiel around to just have a part of my life where I don't help others or improve myself. I just have fun. Right. And then if he has all that, and let's say it's the second one, right? Cause that's a lot closer to a normal view of life. Right. Let's say it's the second one. Why does he have that view? Right. What does he think justifies that? And I think what he <coughs> justifies that is that if you don't take that view, you're going to go crazy. And you're going to give up on the moral project. But I think he thinks we are, like, he does, he says this explicitly in the metaphysics of morals. The goal is what he calls autocracy, which is complete self-control. Being able to resist your desires, no matter how strong they are. And, uh, if, if it means doing the morally right thing. Now, that's of course, he might still not believe in morality everywhere, because he might just think morally right thing doesn't come up that much. But I think in the world we're in, where it's so easy for so much of us to help others permissible happiness, I think it, it would be hard for him to um, to deny that we have pretty strong duties to help other people. I agree that in the in the world we're in, his view is effectively a morality everywhere view, 
despite the fact that technically, conceptually, it need not be one, right? I mean, I, I, look, the utilitarian view has to be one, right? It seems to me. Um, um, because there's always, there's always the potential of increasing utility, right? Um, sure. I just don't think the Kantian view has to be one. But I agree with you that probably in the world we live in, it's going to be more of one than not, right? I mean, it's going to, it's, it's, it's certainly going to be a much more demanding moral code than, than I would, a much more demanding and expansive moral code than I would accept. Um, um, so I agree with you. I mean, it's, it's effectively one, even if it's not conceptually or necessarily one. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let, let me, let me do two more things. I want to talk first about the utilitarian, right? I should say as a bit of biography, Utilitarianism has always been a bit of a tricky thing for me. Like I find myself intellectually compelled by it and also emotionally repulsed by it. Like I find, and I don't mean this to come off negative. I mean, I do mean it to come off negative, but it's not as negative as it sounds. I find people who are diehard utilitarians scary and like I don't trust them in the sense that I I worry what they're going to do to me. Like I just... And it's funny because I'm sure I because you're on. not sure how you might how your fate might fit into some 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 far flung utility calculus. Yeah, I actually asked one. Here's a true story. I won't give this person's name, but he's a fairly prominent utilitarian ethicist. I said to him, "Hey, imagine I had a crystal ball, and and we both looked into it, and we could see the future. And in my future, over the rest of my life, I'm going to have slightly more unhappiness than happiness. And I know this, and you know this." And I say to you, well, that sucks, but I still want to live the rest of my life. Do you think you'd be obligated to kill me? And he said, oh, yeah. Like, no hesitation. And I'm like, geez. Um, now, maybe he doesn't really believe it. He's just saying it to like as a parlor game. But even so, it's just like if the view itself entails that, I'm like, geez. But anyway, um, but let me go on to the other thing. Uh, another utilitarian, a much more humane one, who you would get along with a lot better. I don't even know if he's still a utilitarian. He told me that one of the things about utilitarianism is that the more people become utilitarians, the easier utilitarianism gets, right? The more everybody tries to do something about these problems, the less we have to do. So in theory, we could get to the point where indeed championship tennis would be quite a utilitarian thing to do, right? We might get to some, I mean, it seems to me like pie in the sky, but we might get to some point where we've gotten rid of some very basic problems of existence and sustenance yeah. where now it's kind of okay to engage in sports and music because yeah, yeah, they yeah, bring yeah, about yeah. a lot of happiness. Yeah. yeah. So that's something that could happen yeah. in theory. Yeah. Um, but of course it doesn't affect what we should do right now. So let me just do one last thing. Sure. Why right now should I think that the, the, the force of morality outweighs my flourishing? Cause I do think the two are opposed, right? And, or um, even just, outweighs a society in which people are pursuing flourishing as well as trying to trying to uh, meet their obligations. Okay, that's a different issue. Because that's what seems to me is ultimately the question. That's I, what Wolf asks is, you know, what kind of world would, would, would we want to live in, right? Right. So I have two different answers to those questions, and I sure. warned you I might be inconsistent. Sure. My answer to the first question is this. If I just think to myself of the people starving to death, and I could perhaps do something to help them, at the moment I'm doing it, whatever I'm doing pretty much always seems less important than that. Right. right? And so that's where I feel the pull of morality. That pulls the, that, that's the, that's the girl drowning in the lake pull. Exactly. I mean, yes. Yeah. And so it seems to me hard to say, 
but I've got to flourish. And the way I flourish is by going to this Bach concert. And if that means I'm not going to give money to save your life, I'm sorry, but my flourishing matters. But is it actually hard for you? Hard for me what? Is that hard for you? To go to the Bach concert? Or to spend time with your kids or or even to have had kids or to, uh, uh, or yeah. to, or to participate in family life or – I mean, yeah. do you really sit there and say, gosh, I really shouldn't be at this Thanksgiving dinner. I should be feeding the poor <laughs> and, and uh, working in hospice or something. Or- it's never feeding the poor because I just don't think I'm very good at that. Um, it's more like um, I should be doing a different line of work or I should be giving more of my money to charity or that kind of stuff. But ha- am I thinking about that when I'm taking care of my kid? No, but that's not that, – that, see, those things don't strike me as the real – to push someone like you. I want to know – Yeah. All the family life that you participate in. Yeah. Are you thinking about this while you're doing that? You're with uh, your kid in the park? Yeah, yeah. Or, you, or, or no. you're, visiting your, you're visiting your elderly parents? Or you sit there and think, I should be doing something better than this? So, I'll, so the answer is mostly no, sometimes yes. When I'm with my kid, he's a handful. So I'm just thinking about him, right? Preventing him from running into a car, whatever. When I'm with my mom... Um, she's a larger than life personality. So I'm always just like talking to her and responding. Um, so like they just occupy my mental real estate just doesn't occur to me. But other times I do think, yeah, what am I doing? Like I need to reorient my life. But you know, here's one thing I wonder about. Is it all an act, right? Is it all an act I tell myself to feel good about myself for at least having the feelings, right? So I bring this up because this is a point Kant made. He said, there's a very big difference between well-wishing and well-doing. A lot of people go around wishing the world well and convincing themselves that because of that, they're good people instead of actually doing something about the world, right? And it sounds like all of Twitter. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, slacktivism, right? Um, yeah, so... Hashtagivism. So like, yeah, actually... I mean, we could get into that, but maybe, maybe in a future dialogue, we could talk yeah. about um, all the, cause you know, f- this is strange, but you're the first person who connected morality everywhere to the like arguably oppressive moralism on Twitter. I'd never made the connection in my life. And I'll tell you why. Cause I never you're not saw on Twitter, right? You're not, well, on I, I used to be, I used to be, uh, yeah. but I, I never saw it as moralistic. I always saw it as a power play. I always thought it's just a way to say, like, this is the out group, we're the in group, let's yeah. sort of reinforce that. And I do believe they do care about these things, but I do, I sort of detect the bloodlust as well. Yeah. Like, let's kill them. Yeah. And, um, and so I never thought, like, yeah. the driving concern was, um, moralism. But, but see, I that's, do think- why, that's why I wrote in that paper, Prescription, Reason, and Force, which I'm going to have linked here. But I said, why, this is why people always try to moralize their language. It's because, they know that it carries a certain psychologically coercive force within it that allows them to avoid the kind of normal negotiation and accepting, you know, compromises that normally you have to make when you're engaged in social negotiation. Right. And so to me, you know, because I don't have see any principled value in this moralism, um, to which I could say, well, there is a good reason for it. It's just that these people are abusing it. Um, I think that its primary function is rhetorical. Um, um, I actually don't think it really denotes anything really real at all. Um, um, but part of this is because I'm not a, you know, I'm not a theist. I don't think, I think in, in, in an atheistic framework, 
I think all moral imperatives, as Anscombe says, have merely mesmeric force. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 they don't have any actual force because the purely eudynamic considerations don't carry any ob- obligation with them. You, they, you only get oblig- you only get morals in the sense of oblig- obligation when you uh, say that those virtues are divinely commanded, right? I mean, that's when that's when you get sort of the moral for the force of the obligation. Um, out of Aristotle, all you get is a bunch of hypothetical imperatives. You know, if you want to, if you want to flourish as a human being, then you should do this or that, or not probably not do this or that or the other. But if you don't care about flourishing as a human being, none of this applies to you, right? Um, it only applies if it's divinely commanded, right? And that's the sort of what, where you get Western ethics, right? Is from this combination of eudynamic. And so, you know, because I don't think that there's any reality to these, to this moral, to this moral framework, right? I really just think that these are elaborate exercises in saying what you want and pretending that there's some force behind it, right? Um, and hoping that the other person won't notice or will be tricked or will be tricked into it. And it's why, I, it's why I resist it so fiercely because I view it primarily as a tactic and, and, and in my view, a rather underhanded one. Right, it's an effort to avoid social negotiation. Okay, um, so so I can certainly see your point of view. Uh, first of all, I'm not convinced by Anscombe's paper. Like, I'm not convinced. We that, could do a whole dialogue on that. <laughs> yeah, we could. I'm not. I, I find a divine command ethic, meta ethic, attractive. I'm not sure I endorse it, but I don't think it's the only way to be somebody who thinks that moral, morality has categorical force. Right, well, um, she, she does discuss Kant's idea of self-legislation, but I think she dismantles it pretty hard, pretty handily um, um, by saying that the notion of self-legislation is actually a bit of nonsense. It doesn't make it, it, it doesn't make any sense. But regardless, um, yeah. Um, what, what, one last thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wait, have, on. we, have we got on long? So, so I talked about how um, right now, like I think there's a conflict between my being moral and my flourishing. But you said one of the things Wolf points out is that maybe at a social level too, right? And one of the things I wonder about is I wonder to what extent that's right. Like, so like from what I know, and I don't know that much, but from what I know, like there's a lot of like uh, morally good features of advanced Western democracies, like in terms of like, equal rights in terms of like treatment of women and minorities, as opposed to a lot of countries that don't have that framework where I think it's um, arguably quite, quite a lot less egalitarian uh, by our standards that, and maybe a lot, I'm just going to say maybe a lot morally worse in a lot of countries that don't have a kind of capitalist economy with like a, you know, mixed market kind of system. Sure. And so I wonder if like one of the best ways because I don't know how, how good hectoring is to actually get change people's morality. It may be one of the best ways to, to improve people's morality is, or at least their, the outcome of their morality is to have like a thriving economy. And maybe one of the ways to have that is with all these different parts, right? Because, you know, as a Catholic, I think different people have different vocations, right? They're called to do different things. And to the extent that there's a place for them to, to sort of live out their calling, I think that's important, but um, to the extent that like we've messed up the world a lot and now we have moral obligations that are at odds with your calling, that's a problem. But it might also be the case that um, doing like trying to make everybody into a moral saint at a social level might actually bring about morally worse consequences than yeah. a different approach. And so 
Yeah. You know, I, I feel a little bit like, you know, if, if the people who were sort of pushing the sort of morality everywhere view, and, and I, to be fair, I mean, it's a lot of people and it's a lot of quite smart people. I mean, uh, Eric Schwitzgibble, uh holds this view and, and, and he's quite a good philosopher and, and, and also a, a, a nice, a gen, generous guy. Um, um, the, if people put it more in the matter of, look, ultimately what we're trying to get to is a society where the primary focus is flourishing. But right now we're in kind of a triage situation, right? And if people put it that way and said that, look, the ultimate aim is for people to pursue all of these incredible modes of flourishing of which human beings are uniquely capable, whether in the arts or in literature or in cuisine or in athletics or in all of these things that we really are capable of doing really miraculous things, right? If someone told me that that was the ultimate aim, was that people would be able to do that, but we have to sort of adopt this morality everywhere position because so many people not only are nowhere in a position to do those things, but are barely making it alive to the next day, I'd have a lot more sympathy for it. But it's sort of never cast that way. It's always sort of cast in the – because, look, ultimately what I think is – it's funny. I had a similar, I had a similar thing with my father. So people know that my father's been very ill, and um, he, you know, I spent a six-week epic time in New York dealing with his catastrophic uh, uh, deterioration and hospitalization. But you know, as he was getting better and was going to come out, um, there was a lot of sort of question about what he should return to, right? Does he go back home? Does he go into some sort of, do my parents both go into some sort of uh, assisted living environment? And clearly the medical advice, the stay as long as alive, as long as possible and as good a shape as possible advice all pointed towards sort of continued institutionalization mm-hmm. um, in some sort of managed setting. But, as my father asked me, he said, at one point he said, what the hell did I go through all this to get out of the hospital for? Right. <laughs> and what I want to ask the morality everywhere people is, what ultimately do you want to get all these people out of poverty for? To do what? To just not be out of poverty? No. You Ultimately, the point is, you want them to be able to then go on and pursue their flourishing, right? Mm-hmm. And so that is the ultimate good. That is the ultimately governing, and I don't think you can get there unless it's very clear that that's the, that that's the priority. Because otherwise, it seems to me you just wind up in a cul-de-sac, right? Okay, so now we've gotten all the pot-bellied, starving children unpot-bellied. And now we've also spread, you know, liberal democracy to every country in the world. Well, look, the relentless logic of morality everywhereism is still always going to be able to find something that you could do that would be more maximizing or whatever it is. It, it just, you're never going to get where it seems to me, obviously, that is the reason why everybody's doing these things, right? The reason why we care about helping people in sub-Saharan Africa is not so that they can simply continue to exist. It's so that they can then pursue flourishing the way that we do here, right? Yeah, good. So so that's <laughs> that's interesting. Like, I once... You know, the thought experiment, right, about, like, what does the starving person in Africa say? And I thought to myself, well, would they want me to 
bring myself down to the same condition as them. And I actually wasn't as, I wasn't sure about that. I wasn't sure that they would say, no, no, you have to keep on giving until you're as poor as I am. I thought, you know, they would say, <laughs> give up a lot of stuff, but thank you. I, I mean, also to be fair, I also, when I, when I do this thought experiment, I sometimes think they would feel like presumptuous telling me what to give them. I don't know. You know, I'd have to ask them, <laughs> right? And there's a lot, a lot of people have different answers, but, um, yeah, I do think at some point, like politically, I kind of, I kind of, uh, like sufficientarianism. Like as long as everybody has enough, then after that, your sort of responsibilities to them are over, right? And when it comes to morality, I'm not going to say that, but I will say that flourishing involves not just, um, not dying, but also having some level of autonomy, some level of control over your own life, some level of a sense that you have responsibility for your destiny and your capacity to pursue goods right right yeah and and so like if if you're constantly whoever's at the bottom is constantly the subject of everybody's concern and like oh we have to help you and help you i do wonder if people would lose a sense of autonomy or a sense of mastery depending on what the bottom is like if you're starving you can't have mastery anyway because you're starving but once you've gotten past that right you might not want to think of yourself as a charity case right and so, um, so yeah, like I don't, I, I don't, I haven't really spent a lot of time about like the end goal, right. Or stages along the end goal. So it is funny. You're right. I think most morality everywhere people, there is a kind of, um, enjoyment in being able to tell people, Hey, you've got to stop doing what you're doing. You've got to stop having the fancy dinners because you're letting the starving people die. It's counterintuitive. It's surprising. It comes from premises that seem plausible. So it's like a philosopher's trick that you can pull and you feel good about yourself and your students. But if you start thinking about the logic it represents and start applying it, you start to realize, wait a minute, I don't know that I think this really makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, the whole reason to say, the whole reason to get these people out of poverty is so that they can do things like fucking enjoy dinners. Right? right, right. That's the whole goddamn point of it. The whole reason I'm getting my father out of the hospital was so that he could go enjoy whatever's left of his life, not so that he just sit there and try to stay alive as long as possible. And so, the problem I have with the morality everywhere problem is that I think that ultimately it winds up being a kind of a it, it, it winds up not even it winds up misunderstanding even the the point of being moral. Right? Um, it, it, it it fetishizes yeah. obligation. Right. Um, um, uh, or it totemizes it. It turns it into an idol. Um, where it seems to me that the the whole point of of, of obligation is 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 that the reason why we care about going and feeding these people in Africa is so that eventually they can enjoy a standard of living where they can now start pursuing normal pursuits. Right. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I agree with Not you. Not so that they can turn into a bunch of moral saints and spend all their time. That's why I think that the, the, the Christopher Hitchens um, <coughs> critique of Mother Teresa was somewhat apt. He said she didn't love the poor. She loved poverty, right? Um, she fetishized or totemized or rendered it, turned it into an idol. Not really. And the whole point of what she's doing is supposed to be to get the people out of the damn place, right? Right. Yeah, like <coughs> I don't- to go live normally. Yeah, so, you know, I bet you a lot of the morality everywhere people will say, yeah, of course, I never would have denied that. But I think your point is that, like, well, you never say it, right? Not just like, that, but, but the way you phrase, the way you articulate the morality everywhere entails against it, right? I mean, it points against it um, because it is indeed the case 
that mm-hmm. even once everyone, there's no one starving anymore and everyone is at a base level, it is still going to be the case, at least certainly on the Singerite version, that you're always going to be able to maximize some sort of... Yeah. Right. And so... Um, and I think this is part of the reason why in the first world, the developed world, why we've now developed this whole new universe in which to, to apply moral scruples, and that is to people's um, most subtle and, and, and indetectable psychological states, right? Right? So now, now, now we've, we, we've corrupted the word harm. We've taken the word harm now and extended it to the point that, why? Because we've largely solved, to a, to a great degree, the genuine humanitarian in the, in the obligation sense problems in the developed world. But because so many people are in the grip of this morality everywhere ethos, they just, they just need to invent new problems, right? They need to invent new utility. And so they create an entirely fictional universe of harms that they now get to combat. And what do you think is going to happen when they've solved all of those? They're just going to invent new ones, right? Yeah. Um, There's, um, there's a line, I think it's a, I think it's Russell Kirk, the conservative intellectual. I think he said something like egalitarianism is the engine of permanent revolution. And I think the point behind this is that, yeah, there's always some way in which people aren't equal enough and then everything has to be changed. But I, I do want to, you know, I think, I think, uh, I would, I think uh, a, a commenter on the electric uh, agora, EJ winner, I think is his name. I think he criticized me for having an indulgent, my word, not his, but an indulgent conception of harm. And I think I probably do actually. I think um, a harm is a harm. And I know, I don't know how Mill intended the word harm. I'm sure if you told him about, you know, oh, you, you know, the microaggressions. I've harmed you, you like, by not calling you Zer. I've right. harmed For instance, yeah. Right. And Mill and so, does not mean that by harm. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know what he means. I mean, in the sense that if he ever like tried to sort of give a not a necessary special conditions, but a kind of like elaboration about what harm is, or if he thought it was intuitive enough. I think he can be deduced from on liberty. In other words, he doesn't explicitly say it, mm-hmm. but given the overall arching logic of on liberty, harm has to be something that's quant that's demonstrable, observable by others, and to some extent quantifiable, because otherwise. Um, being able to claim it is too easy and then provides a constant way to undermine or deny others liberty, right? The whole point of the thing. In other words, the, 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 the essay on liberty makes no sense as a whole if harm is not construed quite strictly and narrowly, right? Otherwise, then it becomes, well, anybody can claim anything that they didn't like harm them. And yeah. now you have no, li- there's no liberty at all, which is of course exactly what, exactly what, um, contemporary social justice, uh, people are trying to do is they're trying to, they're trying to render the harm principle so ubiquitous that they can basically curtail people's liberty everywhere, right? Um, and that's clearly not the point of on liberty. The point of on liberty is to argue on behalf of expansive notions of liberty, not, uh, not to curtail it. So it seems to me you can deduce from the text that what he means by harm has to be something that is is publicly demonstrable and not just you claiming it, right? Yeah, like I guess I guess part of me thinks I have a kind of different take. I mean, I agree with you that Mill must mean something like that because otherwise the essay would just collapse in on itself. And a principle of charity suggests 
not to take him too liberally. But I remember reading an editorial in the New York Times, and I don't remember who wrote it, but it was some, some neuroscientist, so take it with a grain of salt. But this person was talking about how when certain words are uttered towards people, the, the, the brain, whatever, secretes hormones, the skin has certain kinds of reactions that are highly similar to the kind of way people react when they're physically harmed. And this was a worrisome editorial for me because what it was what it was suggesting was that words are harms or violations of our rights just the same way as punching somebody in the face and i thought to myself well maybe this person's exaggerating the neuroscience but maybe they're not and if they're not what do i think and one thing i did think and this might just be the old man in me talking as young as i look i suppose i have an old soul um i wonder if people in the past were less sensitive you don't have to wonder. They're walking among us. <laughs> well, okay. If you but, talk to my parents about the contemporary ethos, they would tell you they think it's completely insane. Well, right. sure, but wh- how would they feel about Because, like, I mean, they survived concentration camps and stuff. I mean, to them, hearing that somebody had a meltdown, fell apart because someone wouldn't call him Zer, they'd say this person needs to be locked up, right? This person's clearly mentally ill. Um, yeah. they, they, you know, my father's famous line is, you know, whenever I would complain, he would ask me if there was either war or famine. And I said, no. And he said, everything's great. Um, and so, and so, yeah, I mean, we don't have to guess. Um, um, well, I'll tell you why I say we we've have to escalated guess. in a way that is almost uh, 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 like almost absurd, right? It's, it's, it's right. The proliferation of harms is, is, is just out, absolutely out of control, right? Well, yeah. So my theory so I have two theories. So my, my, my first theory is that the harms are real. It's just that they don't have to be. Like people could make themselves less fragile. But the fact that people are sort of trying to look for harms might make them more fragile. This sort of has to do with Nicholas Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile. I think that's certainly the case, yes. And so like people have like talked themselves into a level of of um, fragility that they don't have to have. And that's making them more harm. This is sort of like uh, Lukianoff and, and Heights yeah. theory in the coddling yeah. of the American yeah. mind. Yeah. And the other theory though, is that I don't, I wonder how new this is. I mean, I have to admit to me as somebody growing up in the eighties and nineties, like the things that people claim to be traumatized by, I'm sort of shocked they're traumatized by them. Like, you know, um, people in the comments of your, uh, of your website, you know, constantly tell me I need therapy. And I'm like, yeah, maybe I do. But, you know, who cares? They're, they're, they're letting off steam. All right. I'm sorry, everyone. We just got interrupted because of uh, just being full issues. I've just cleared some space. Um, go ahead and finish up what you were saying, Robert, um, um, because we are near the end anyway. So, yeah, I was just having two points. The first point was um, that I think people might have made themselves more made susceptible themselves to harm. Yeah, to the point to where now they really are being harmed, but it's self-inflicted. Right. Yeah. yeah. And um, I don't remember the second point. <laughs> let, let, let me ask, to... let me, you know, let, you know, let me now play the other side of this. Yeah. Um, whether it's self-inflicted or not now, if it's a genuine harm, then it does, en- it does engage the harm principle, right? And, and is it just a reason to sort of constrain other people's liberty? Um, so I would, I would resist accepting, I would resist that, explanation, even if it winds up being true, what I would say is, look, part of what Mill is saying is that there are certain, there is certain harm you're just going to have to fucking live with if you want to live with other people. Yeah, I think it, it complicates the harm. And, and I really do think that my main answer to these people now is, you know, tough shit. 
Yeah. I, re- I actually don't really care if you really are being harmed or not in this, these, these exquisite ways that you're saying, because that's the price of living with other people, right? I mean, if you don't, if you don't want that, then go live on a mountain by yourself. But if you're going to live with other people, you're going to just have to accept that you're going to hear things you don't like. You're going to see things you don't like. Not everyone is going to talk to you the way you'd like. Not everyone is going to call you what you, not everyone is going to uh, embrace and cheer for everything you do. And if you don't like that, then you just can't live with other people, right? Ah, um, I remember my second point words, Don't even deny the harm. Just say, look, it's not the sort of harm that's, that's relevant in a liberal society, right? Um, yeah, you could say it's like there's a baseline of harms that we're going to do to each other, and that's just part of being a grown-up is accepting that, right? That's right. That's right. Um, but the other thing I was going to say is it certainly feels to me like this is a new level of sensitivity, but at the same time, I wasn't around – in the sixties in the fifties, I don't know how people would react when, when it, when people would say would like be overt atheists, for instance, or how they would react if you were say criticizing American foreign policy in very strong terms. Yeah. Like, is it, is it that people have truly become more sensitive than they have been in the past? Or is it that just the taboos are different and that people were always sensitive to one thing or the other. Now they're just sensitive to this. Yeah. And I don't know how to answer That's that. That's a fair point. That's a fair observation, and I don't know the answer to that either. Um, and I'm not sure even that there is a way to answer it conclusively. Um, um, but um, so we we, pro- we probably should stop. Um, when you run out of space on your hard drive, you probably know you've gone on too long. And I think yeah. we're at two hours anyway. Um, oh, we didn't quite get to everything we we're going to talk about, but since I get the feeling that we're going to do more of these, um, that's okay. <laughs> well, we'll see. Let's hope well, there's popular demand. I, certainly I want to. Um, um, I certainly want to, and I hope that your 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 the terrible whatever that terrible weakness is that keeps you sitting in chairs and making videos. I hope I hope you're not cured of it. Um, <laughs> well, and- I I want to give the people what they want because I'm a people pleaser, and if they want less of me, I'll give them that. Okay, but if they want more of me, I'll give them that too. All right, fair enough. Uh, Robert, thank you so much. Take care. And, you too, Dan. Uh, I will see you in the next time. All right. Yeah. See you around. Bye bye. Good. Before you go, a quick message from the Suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.